Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. A very, very warm welcome to you. Good afternoon. It is Thursday afternoon and it's fresh thinking time. We've been out of sync over here for a while. I haven't been around for the last few weeks and do apologize, but been to all kinds of interesting places around the country and around the globe. Back in the seat here today, and you are definitely welcome to participate and be part of the conversation for the next 55 minutes as we explore, question, query, debate. And uh, there's a lot of debate going on already, which is what I'm going to share with you today. You are definitely welcome to join the conversation at any time. So have these numbers handy. If you'd like to send an SMS to the studio, the number is 34519. Those SMSs are charged at around 50. If you'd like to WhatsApp us, you can WhatsApp directly on 0621482374. No extra charge for that. You can always email on air at chaifm.com. You can call the studio 0746547335. And you could tweet at chaifm. You could tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. I'm going to start talking today about something which is really, really concerning. And I think it's becoming more and more concerning as time goes by. And that is the, uh, well, there's a whole conversation going on. In fact, that's what inspired me to talk about this today. The whole conversation that I'm involved with right now on social media. And it's an ongoing conversation, I suppose. But there's, there's this tension, this tension that seems to exist within the, uh, within Israeli society and perhaps within Jewish society at large. And we can talk about that too, between so-called religious and so-called secular. And I specifically use the word so-called because I think these definitions are difficult and one person's religion is not good enough or religious observance is not necessarily good enough for the next person and one person is considered more secular and so on. And we can become totally subjective in all of that. But there's there's definitely tension and it's building at the moment because of certain things happening, particularly in Israel, whether it be around egalitarian prayer at the Western Wall, or whether it be around the conversion process, or a whole bunch of other things that are constantly being debated and bandied back and forth. And everybody kind of digs their heels in and says, I'm absolutely right. And there has to be, in certain things, there has to be a right way and a wrong way. There has to be. Can't all be open to opinion, because then you can't resolve things in life if everything is just a matter of opinion. There has to be some kind of sense of what's appropriate and what's inappropriate. And I came across an article, and this is what's really erupted the conversation. I came across an article on Haaretz, and it's written by somebody who claims to be an, a secular Israeli woman. And the, t- the title of the article is, Who Are We to Tell Religious Jews What to Do at the Western Wall? And she goes on, it's really interesting. Of course, it's, it's well written, actually. It's really well written. It's contemporary. It's fresh. And she goes on essentially to say that, quite honestly, how many secular Jews in Israel really care that much about the Kotel, about the Western Wall? Uh, it's, it's a circumspect on the one hand, it's maybe a little critical of her own community on the other hand. But basically saying, you know, everybody's kicking up this whole fuss about whose jurisdiction it is to decide what is or is not acceptable at the Western Wall. And do the people who are the protagonists for change about the prayer service at the Western Wall, do they really care? Or is this just a way to push a particular agenda? So that's the question that she poses. 
And in the article, she makes a, a comment, which I think is an important comment, basically to say, were it not for religious observant Jews, we wouldn't have the Kotel now necessarily. And I, I don't mean militarily in terms of regaining land and some, something like that, just in terms of it being a feature and something which is really important. And she talks about the fact that it's our prayers that direct us in the direction of Jerusalem and that direct us to rem- to remember and recall the temple, which is obviously what the Western Wall represents. I mean, we, now we're during the three weeks, as it's called, this colloquially termed period, three weeks in halachic terms, it's called Bain Hametzorim, the place, the time of constriction, of constraint, of difficulty. This is the time of the year when we commemorate the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash, of the temple in Jerusalem. And were it not for the fact that we had this annual commemoration, were it not for the fact that we have certain practices that we do, whether they be at Simchas, at a wedding, for example, or whether they be in our daily basis, or some people in the construction of their homes, or whatever it is that remind us of the temple, Perhaps the Western Wall might have just become a relic, as other historic places in other parts of the world, or perhaps even in Israel, have become. So it's a really interesting article, and I shared it on social media, and that is, of course, where all the debate began. Who's to say who's right? Who's to say who's wrong? And I I just get really nervous about the fact that there's such disparity and such dissent within our own community and such I mean you're entitled obviously to have an opinion to be passionate about that opinion but don't you think perhaps that we're just too much at each other's throats uh, rather than having debate it's kind of becoming a little bit too personal a little bit too confrontational that's what I'd like to discuss. And perhaps we can get into some of the detail of, you know, whose view should we or should we not accept. I'd love to hear your views on that. 34519 for SMSs. 0621482374 is the WhatsApp line. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So we're going to talk about debate. I mean, we know that debate is very much a part of Judaism and always has been. Look at the Talmud as an example. I mean, people had extremely divergent opinions on all kinds of things relating to Jewish practice, to Jewish belief, to the prioritizing of certain values within the Jewish community. I mean, we are no strangers to debate and and quite well uh, expressed debate, you know, quite quite hot-headed debate. And nevertheless, at the same time, it's always been part, or it should have always been, I, I don't know if it's always been part, but certainly in the early stages of his of history and the early stages of Jewish debate, it was always a matter of, this is an intellectual issue. We have different views. It has nothing to do with who we are personally. Whereas today, it seems that there's a lot of mudslinging and there's a lot of blame and there's a lot of, if you would do things differently, then we wouldn't have these problems. And we're kind of squeaky clean, but you're the people who are the problem. And, of course, you can't get very far in anything <laughs> with those kinds of attitudes, certainly not in building a Jewish people and building a solid Jewish people. And I hate it when people say things like, "We, when we have a war, that's when Jews pull together. I mean, it should definitely not be that way. And it's that this is the time of the year that we're, that we're supposed to be introspective about how we treat each other. We know that the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem was the direct result of people treating each other with disrespect. And we know that the Talmud says there is no vessel that is better for receiving God's blessing than Peace, and that means peace within our community. Before we talk about peace in the world at large, or between peace between us and our neighbors, you can't propose to have peace with others if you can't have peace with yourselves. So that's why it it, it sort of worries me a little bit more 
at this time of the year when, when this is the narrative, this is the kind of thing that's going on. And I think we have to address it. We have to talk about it. And it's, it's, it's people are so often. <coughs> Excuse me. People are often so entrenched in a particular view that they they don't even have the opportunity to hear what somebody else is saying. And I, just to use an example of that, so uh, here was this article which I've just quoted. This article from Haaretz, which of course, as everybody knows, is not a particularly religious publication, and yet this uh, this article was very strongly in favour of allowing the. Halachic authority to determine what happens at the Western Wall and, and somebody immediately Immediately responds and says Religious Jews should respect the rights of others Now what's Why is that a, why, why Why does it have to be that kind of a Knee jerk response and it goes on to say the particular comment Goes on to say that uh, if you have people Who wish to worship don't get involved In the manner in which they worship And uh, he ends off the, the comment by saying a religious Jew should be an example of tolerance Now I, I don't get that uh, maybe somebody here has a different view on that And you definitely are welcome to share the view What does that mean? A religious Jew should be an example of tolerance Why? Why is that a, a something that is an expectation of a religious Jew? Why is that not an expectation of every person? I find it's 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 odd <clears throat> That people use that You know, like as if to say The religious world is the intolerant world Maybe that is your experience And if it is, that's fine So let's talk about it And I'd love to hear it I really would Love to hear your your views on it, but I personally, as a religious Jew, as a rabbi, as a representative of the religious community, I take umbrage with that. You know, why is it that you say a religious Jew is expected to be a symbol of tolerance? Why don't we say we're all expected to be symbols of tolerance? Why is that loaded on one segment of the community more than on another segment of the community? And sometimes it does feel that that is the case. Sometimes it does feel as if. There's an expectation that the Torah observant world has to be accepting of things that are antithetical to Torah values, whereas the people who are pushing, and I'm not talking about the average Jewish person who's going about their life. I'm talking about people who have a particular agenda and, and, and try to push a particular agenda, um, don't necessarily always you got to be careful how you say it because generalizations, of course, are unhealthy, but don't necessarily have the same tolerance or acceptance of that religious, observant person, group, community, perspective. So it's interesting. It's, it's really interesting and concerning because we do need to get ourselves to a place that we can have divergent opinions but not necessarily want to rip each other's throats out. I remember years ago when I was studying in Yeshiva in Israel and we'd every Friday afternoon we'd go and visit a particular area in Tel Aviv and we'd set up a little stand over there and offer passing Israelis the opportunity to put on tefillin. Now, it's a very different society to ours. You know, we're a very polite, maybe overly polite society here in South Africa. Israel is much more direct. You don't have to give all these buttering ups and preambles. Just say what it is that you have to say. Confront the person. Have the conversation. And maybe that is why a lot of the debate lands up looking so much harsher than it is because Israelis shoot from the hip and they speak directly and there are no niceties necessarily in the conversation because it's things that we're passionate about. But anyhow, so we used to go then. We used to 
have this table with a few pairs of tefillin and people would pass by and you got essentially three kinds of people as is to be expected. You got those people who wanted of their own volition. They saw the stand with the tefillin and they came like running over to say, strap me up kind of thing. And then you had those people who were ambivalent and when we would invite them and say, listen, would you like to come put on tefillin? They, they agreed. Not necessarily overly enthusiastically, but they agreed because they felt that it's something that they should do. And then there were those people who were outright confrontational. And at that particular time, and I don't think it's gone away, although it has changed. At that particular time, a lot of the argument was, you know, you religious Jews, you don't serve in the army. You don't contribute to the state. So who are you to tell us what to do kind of thing? And it, it's, it was such an eye-opener because obviously coming from a different environment and not having grown up in Israel with all the dynamics and all the politics that obviously must exist in a particular culture was quite a thing. You know, what, what are you attacking me for? It's not as if I'm shoving a re- religion down your throat and saying you must become observant and if you don't keep Shabbos and kosher, you're going to hell or something like that. It was – would you like to do a mitzvah? He has an opportunity. We're here. I could have, uh, you know, like most yeshiva students on a Friday afternoon, that's your time off. You know, the, the, the Shabbos is a busy day, believe it or not. Sunday is a full day of study. So, yeah, Friday afternoon is an opportunity. Could, do, could have done what many other yeshiva students would have done, which is go out and have a shawarma or maybe go touring a little bit, whatever the case is. And here we are reaching out, Not again, not in this kind of overwhelming dictatorial way. So, to get that sort of harsh response, it's almost as if did, did you even contextualize what's happening over here? Why are you so angry about it? So that's a little bit of what concerns me. And I think it's very quickly the kind of conversation we could say, well, I wonder if it's even fair to say that one side, if you've got the, the religious community and you've got the secular community, I wonder if you can even get to a point where we can say, well, the one side is more accepting of the other side. Is that even true? Is that even possible? People are very quick to say that the religious community is not so accepting of the secular community. I beg to differ. Personally, I beg to differ. And I think maybe people in their own experience would also differ. Um, but on the other hand, to say that the secular community is fully accepting of the religious community is naive. Now, of course, there are many shades. This is not a black and white kind of reality where all religious Jews are homogenous and, and all think in the same way and all look at each other in the same way. Of course not. And equally, on the secular side, it's not you can't say that everybody's in the same headspace. We understand that. And there definitely are shades. But just... We need to, we need to talk about these things. We need to explore them. We need to understand them. We know that a fundamental principle of Judaism is to love your fellow Jew. We know that Rabbi Akiva, the famous Rabbi Akiva, said that this is the underpinning of the whole of the religion. So it doesn't necessarily matter how ideologically charged you are. It doesn't matter how uh, schooled you are, how learned you are. And for that matter, it doesn't necessarily matter how idealistic you are or how out there saving the world and being an environmentalist and saving the whales or being a philanthropist. That's none of those things. Interestingly enough, none of those things is what Rabbi Akiva who is highly respected as probably one of the most important opinions about what Judaism is all about. None of those things qualify what Judaism is all about. It's about to love your fellow as yourself. So how do you plug that into a conflicted space? How do you plug that into divergent ideologies? How do you plug that into highly charged, passionate views on contentious topics in a place in the world that is already a powder keg to start with and perhaps uh, in our own communities maybe there's that kind of volatility in our own communities as well so three four five one nine or oh six two one four eight 
0567-104-2374 if you'd like to send a WhatsApp. Uh, let's talk about this. Let's talk about the, the conflict, the divergence of the religious and secular elements of the Jewish community. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. Okay, so here on Fresh Thinking, things are definitely heating up. <laughs> which is not all that surprising because this is a contentious topic. Um, and, and people have very strongly invested views on, on how things should operate and who should determine what happens and what policy is in Israel and maybe for that matter in our own communities. I, I have no doubt that the people here in our own Johannesburg or South African Jewish community who feel that who are you to dictate to me how Judaism should operate. So here's a comment. Uh, somebody says, who are religious Jews to tell everyone else how to live in the rest of the country It's talking obviously about Israel And travel on Shabbat Now, there's an interesting one, right? Travel on Shabbat I mean, I don't think it's something that necessarily Enters our conversation here locally Because we don't live in a Jewish country So the public services are available on the weekend But it doesn't make a difference Or on a, on a Jewish festival It wouldn't make a difference necessarily to us But in Israel it's a big issue So there are people who are quite upset About the fact that the Israeli government Which is not necessarily a religious government Imposes And I use that word obviously in quotation marks Because this is, a, this is something I'm referencing From what somebody else has written So they impose religious values Onto the society So you cannot catch a bus in Israel on Shabbos Okay there you have it It's a, it's a tourist idea that on the seventh day on Shabbos you rest and rest includes the fact that we don't use any kind of machinery or any kind of electrical circuitry for all the host of reasons and so here you've got a government that's taken a view that's taken a policy that they will not have public transport on Shabbos and a lot of citizens are really up in arms about that who are you to tell me that I have to live by religious principles that I don't subscribe to so there's an interesting one I mean that's clearly something that that would uh, raise the heckles of some people Right? <laughs> Why? Why Why should I have to conform? Why should I have to subscribe to laws that I don't necessarily believe in? And we do know that there is a fair amount of the Israeli population that is quite secular and doesn't necessarily accept uh, as their way of life the values of Torah. So you can certainly hear where it is that they're coming from. So there's there's one perspective. And then you have the corresponding perspective so here's somebody else this is Shoshana saying as a religious Jew I don't believe that it is our role to tell people how to live at all being authoritarian is not the way to bring Jews closer to Judaism however and of course there often is a however and I'd really like to hear what people think about this particular statement so here's Shoshana saying that it's not our role to tell people how to live Okay, but however, without authentic Torah traditionalism as the foundation providing standards which we can either choose to follow or not, Israel would cease to be a state with Jewish character. So that's that's interesting because, yes, it's probably widely understood and accepted in today's world that you cannot force anything onto another person. It doesn't matter what, any kind of ideology. It doesn't matter if it's political, if it's religious, 
If it's a family value set, we all believe that we're going to bring our children up in a particular way. We're going to tell them how they should see the world. We're going to tell them what kind of values they should subscribe to. There is no guarantee. And, well, there's actually one guarantee, and that is that you cannot force it onto anybody else. So I think Shoshana's point over here about not, uh, not, not being appropriate and not being successful to push your views onto another person is absolutely 100% true. But then she puts in the however, and there she makes a really good point as well. Well, what if we don't have any standard? What if we don't have any foundation? What if we don't have a sense of what constitutes being Jewish people or being a Jewish country or what Judaism is defined by? What if that's completely left to personal choice? What if that's completely left open to debate? What if that's a multiple choice? And uh, for you, it's one thing. For me, it's the next. Uh, what if uh, I enjoy eating challah? And that's my connection to Judaism. And your connection to Judaism is you enjoy giving charity. And the next person's connection to Judaism is they think that it's all about the study of the Talmud. We could then land up with uh, with a problem. We could land up with a very diverse experience or a complete watering down of what Judaism is to the point that eventually it's no longer Judaism. So there has to be a baseline. There has to be. only makes sense that there has to be some kind of a baseline of what is the real deal. And to me, I think the logical place to start will be, well, what's consistent? What's been consistent throughout the course of Jewish history? Because if it's some Johnny-come-lately version of what it is, well, you know, fad today, gone tomorrow. It doesn't mean a thing. And we've seen that. We've seen that in so many areas in life that something becomes highly popular at a particular time or everybody thinks in a particular way at one stage in life and then it blows over and we think differently, whether it was a particular way of rearing children in the 70s and then there was a rebellion against that in the 90s and maybe now today people are somewhat going back to to, to the, the, the 70s style of Spock parenting whatever it is you know things do change and that's fine you can have a certain amount of evolution and you can have a certain amount of shift and flexibility within any society within any culture within any religious ideology but if you don't have a baseline if you don't have a way to determine what actually makes judaism judaism then well <laughs> you know we could call it call it latkinism and say that the whole thing of judaism is about eating jewish foods it's like when you go in in new york and you're looking for a kosher restaurant and a lot of people have fallen foul of this particular phenomenon what happens is people go out there and they're looking and they find something that's called kosher style and and people don't realize that kosher style means that it just looks and feels as if you're having a kosher meal, but the ingredients are not necessarily kosher. So do we want to have Jewish style? And I think it exists to some extent where you have people who observe in a particular way that really has nothing to do with what Judaism was originally, but we've picked up some of the styling of Judaism. So perhaps, you know, I don't know, marrying under a chuppah, but without any of the requisite laws of how marriage should work. And that's one of the big issues that's being debated right now in Israel is about who who should be the final authority on, on how marriage works and who can marry whom and so on and so forth. So it, it, it gets, yeah, I think Shoshana makes a very important point. And um, the point obviously being that... You've got to, uh, you've got to have a baseline. You've got to have a baseline. Then, of course, you get people here. Here's, uh, here's somebody saying, I think the question is who decides what are Jewish values? What makes your interpretation of Jewish values right and another person's interpretation wrong? Now, that is 
That's like the old question. It's the perennial question. It comes up all the time. Who are you to decide? How do you know? How do you know that your version of Judaism is true? Maybe the rabbis just kind of invented something at some particular point in time. And, and you can argue that. And it's a great philosophical argument. But it's, it's in, in, in essence a moot point, actually. Because... Like I say, there's certain things that have been constants. There's certain things that have always been there right throughout. And that's clearly where you start the conversation. If, if something is new and fresh, it's what needs to be questioned because it's new. It's untested. That's how it would work, for example, in a scientific reality. So if we have a particular law of physics and we know that this is how it works and now somebody proposes a different theory about how a certain element of physics will work, we're not just going to embrace it just like that. We're going to test it. We're going to give it time. We're going to see, does it stick? Does it live up to what it says? So same kind of thing, surely, should happen. I mean, there's some really, really nice and exciting sounding ideas about Judaism that people are flaunting at this particular stage in our history, but doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to stand the test of time, whereas there are other elements of Judaism that have stood the test of time. But that's not really our focus today. I want to talk more about the conflict and, and how you see it, how you see the two sides, this deeply religious kind of inflexible side of Judaism versus the so-called open-minded, secular, modern version of Judaism. And they seem to be so much at loggerheads. And what do we do with it? How, how do we balance this? Or can we? Can we actually get people to see eye to eye? Can we get people past their prejudices to be very useful and very important? It's just gone to 30. You are on Fresh Thinking here on Chai FM with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Love to hear your views because it's an important topic. About this uh, conflict that seems to exist between the religious and secular elements of our community. 34519 if you'd like to send an SMS. Otherwise, WhatsApp 0621482374. And uh, while you're typing your message over there or swiping your message, whatever you're doing, I'm going to tell you that Pick and Pay Hyper Nord has amazing specials from the 13th to the 23rd of July. In other words, from today. They've got Kedem grape juice for, that was at 79 Rand 99 now going for 50 rand each. They've got the Rashi Light Concord Red Wine down from 92 rand to only 60 rand. Their Schneider's Nuska 50% chocolate was 38 rand 50 and is now only 25 rand. Their Shevington Kosher Sorted Cheeses went down from 65 rand to 44 rand 99. And they've got a assorted Benny's Pizza reduced from 33 rand 99 to 26 rand 99. <clears throat> Apparently, fries are also on promotion, so you can get reduced prices on selected fry products like the traditional sausages, which have gone down from 41 Rand 99 to 29 Rand 99. So visit Pick and Pay Hyper Nord for much more in-store specials. Sounds good. We're talking about conflict. We're talking about divergent opinions. We're talking about this Tension that seems to exist right now in the Jewish world, particularly in Israel, about what is seen to be rigid religious views being stuffed onto the community, who can do what, when, and how, and a movement saying we want to be liberated from that. We don't agree with you. We think that you're imposing on our lives, and it's not really fair, and it's not really acceptable. And we should be allowed to do as we please. How do we manage it? I don't know that there's necessarily an answer to the question. Look in the Talmud and you'll see that there are debates that are not resolved. They remain 
items in question, their main subjects in question, still till today, centuries later. But the people who stood on the opposing sides of that intellectual fence, they didn't have a personal clash with each other. And that's all we need to be able to learn. How do you have strong views? How do you have very passionate investment in a particular perspective and not land up destroying your opponent because they see or believe differently to you? That's the key over here. Again, it's this time of the year when we're supposed to be quite introspective about how we treat each other, particularly in the Jewish world. And there was a message over here from Rene who says that she feels this is across the board. It's one of the biggest problems that we have in the Jewish world, that uh, it's not only religious against secular, but it's across the board, even within the religious community, all the various breakdowns, factions, so on and so forth, where people just don't seem to be able to see eye to eye. And that's a problem. That's not a case. So what are we going to do? How, how do How do we do it? How do we Get through that. Yes, somebody else saying, Ari says um, that the Haredi hardline, uncompromising, rigid approach to anyone with a different view is the problem. And uh, he uses a nice expression. He says, if you want to gather honey, honey, don't kick over the beehive. So, so but that, that, that's exactly what worries me. See, it's so easy just to get into the blame game. And it's so easy. Well, I don't know if it's easy, but it's, it's certainly something that a person can do. And it's something that does happen a lot is where people get into the blame game. It's all your fault. If the religious community would be more open-minded, everything would be fine. We'd settle our differences. I don't agree. Whoever said that the success of a society or the success of any relationship is about everybody seeing eye to eye. Sounds like a boring world. Look in the marriage context. Are you telling me that every single day, every spouse in a good marriage always sees eye to eye? We know that that's not true. We know that there are certain fundamental things that couples will squabble about for the whole of their married life and they'll still have a good marriage. So why can't we do that as a community? Why can't we have things where we don't see eye to eye and we believe strongly in our particular perspective and we believe absolutely that the next person has lost the plot completely, but we still stay in the marriage, if that makes any sense. We still stay in the relationship. We still respect each other. We still believe that we're one extended family. Why are we, why are we missing that? What's happening over here that's, that's causing Difference, And I understand that it's people feeling trapped and maybe you're imposing on my life. But that can happen in many contexts. It could happen in a situation. I use the marriage example because it's common in the marriage example where people feel that they're trapped in a situation with somebody in their life who they chose to live with. But that person is now no longer the person that they expected or that person has a particular uh, foible or that person has a particular perspective or an annoying habit or whatever the particular case is. And now you're stuck. Because as much as people say bail out and get divorced, it's not that simple and life doesn't just resolve itself because of that. What about a relationship that's a blood relationship? What about a person who's got a parent who's a difficult parent, a person who's got a child, a difficult child, a sibling, a difficult sibling? Now you're stuck. You can't get out of that relationship. Maybe you can move and live in another country so you don't have to confront them on a daily basis. But you can't end that Relationship. So what, what, what do we do? Do we, I mean, we know, we know that unfortunately what happens is there are breakdowns in relationships. Uh, that infamous word that we use so freely, freely over here in South Africa, that word faribble, they exist. They exist in families. They exist in, in communities. They exist between communities. They exist between rivals in business. We know that. But there are so many examples of people who had that 
absolutely divergent perspective on life itself and still live within a particular relationship. And that's part of what we're supposed to be doing. We talk about the fact that we're like brothers. We talk about the fact that we're all God's children. That implies the family metaphor. The family image. Family does not. Anybody knows this from their own family. Family does not mean homogenous. Family does not mean that everybody sees eye to eye. Family does not mean no conflict. Family means that the bond we have transcends all of that stuff. That we still remain family even when the conflict is in process. We remain family even when we don't see eye to eye. We get past those things. And that's somehow what I believe that we need to be looking for in this great conflict that, that just seems to perpetuate. And it's, there's certain touch points that always bring it to the fore. And we, we, we fall apart. We fall apart. We, we can't look each other in the eye. We start saying disparaging things about each other. The religious speak disparagingly of the secular. The secular speak disparagingly of the religious. And everything, as uh, the famous book title goes, things fall apart and, and that's just that's no good that's really no good here's uh, somebody Rene again saying both the religious and secular communities are completely intolerant <laughs> that's a generalization if I've ever heard one both are completely intolerant you can't tell me you can't tell me that there's nobody in the religious world who gets on well with secular people I'm talking in Israel and I suppose by extension anywhere in the world and no one in the secular world no that's not possible and, and not only is it not possible it's not factual it's not factual I can tell you from first-hand experience, being in Israel numerous times, and you see this incredible connection that does exist between secular, non-observant Jewish people and religious observant people. It exists 100%. To make one broad statement that they're equally intolerant of each other is untrue because you can't make any generalized statement about this whole topic. There are those who see past the conflict and they don't compromise their values to be able to see past the conflict. I know who I am. I know what I believe is true. But that has nothing to do with how I see you. I see you as a fellow Jew. I see you as a compatriot. I see you as a brother, sister. That's how I see you. That exists. That absolutely exists. And I think maybe before we run off onto a whole rant over here about how bad things are, let's just acknowledge that that's not across the board. And perhaps it's actually one of the most bugging things about the conflicts that exist is that very often the people who are the most vocal don't necessarily represent the majority. And to me, that's a bit of a consolation. I hope others agree with that. If you don't agree, you're welcome to let me know. 34519 if you'd like to send an SMS or you can WhatsApp 062-148-2374 or tweet at Chaifem. Tweet me directly at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. It's so funny when you get two messages almost identical coming in through two media simultaneously. It makes me wonder if it's just the same person with a pseudonym. Well, I can't say pseudonym because the SMS that's come through is anonymous. The tweet is from Shelley, Shelley Elk. So the SMS says, Erst darf man sein am Mensch, which means before anything, you have to be a Mensch. I don't have to translate Mensch, right? So the most important thing is basically to be a Mensch. 
And I agree with that, except for the fact that maybe different people have different definitions of what constitutes a mensch. It's a funny thing. People believe that they're a mensch. They actually believe it, even at the time that they mistreat other people. Shelley's uh, tweet says very similar thing and says that among the menches in the trenches, the kind and good-hearted among us, not necessarily either secular or religious, there is connection. So there you have it. Interestingly, two people saying the same thing, but it's really true because if a person is a mensch, then you can accept or expect, I should say, you can expect that the way they treat other people will be menschlich. They'll treat them with respect. They'll treat them as human beings, even if they don't agree with them. And that's, that's really, really important. Um, yeah, that just, uh, I don't, don't want to get into it, but recently, uh, recently this week, there was an incident that, Got me kind of worked up Just total, total disrespect It was in a publication overseas I happened to come across it on social media But absolute disrespect for a, a great Jewish leader And they realized afterwards the, the, the mistake that they had made And that it was completely out of line But the apology that was issued Was just so pathetic So be a mensch Exactly that, be a mensch On either side, doesn't matter where you hold In terms of any element of the debate be a mensch. I think part of that is also be mature, right? Mature enough to understand that we can, we can talk, that we can interact, that we can share, that we can debate. That it's it's okay. It's okay. We can we can argue and debate, and and that's just fine as long as we retain that menschlichkeit and we treat each other with respect. A rather long message from Jonathan, but I think it's good, so I'd like to share it. He says, uh, maybe I'll shorten it a little bit, but he says this. By definition, in other words, on paper, orthodoxy is more rigid than liberal thought. I think in terms of acceptance, liberal thought's default foundation is open-mindedness. Whereas orthodoxy would find open-mindedness more of a challenge. I'm, I'm curious if people agree with that, that to be an orthodox Jew means to find open-mindedness more of a challenge. He then continues... I'll say it again, this is in theory. In practice, however, like most isms or offies, like philosophy, I guess, human error or weakness subverts whatever purity both parties have at their core. So essentially saying that it's all good in theory and we all have great ideas about how we're supposed to treat each other. And how we're supposed to behave. But when it comes down to brass tacks, it's about people. And people behave as people behave. Which is not always in line with the values that they espouse. And it's not necessarily always in line with the ideology that they subscribe to. And that's the problem. Right? People. Not ideologies. People. Ideologies are all perfect in concept. And they all play out rather poorly once they're handed over to people. So, for example, the ideology of being a religious Jew is to have absolute love for every other Jew on the planet. Not always what happens, right? And the ideology of being liberal and open-minded is to accept the views of every kind of person and, and respect them for having div divergent views. And we know that that doesn't happen. So, who's, who's got to take the first step then? If we've got this great divergence and we understand that people are the people who sometimes 
mess up the ideology or practice it in a particular way that doesn't really express what the ideology is all about. And so we land up with conflict because both sides include people who are somewhat intolerant of the other side. And both sides include people who get stuck in their own version of events or their own perspective on the world to the point that they can't see somebody else's perspective. So who has the onus of responsibility to take the first step to make this all better? And I don't know if there's an either or answer over here. I mean, the correct answer should be both, right? Because you can't have a one-sided relationship. So you would need a certain openness on both sides. Which is, that's, that's probably what it boils down to. But, but who? Who should take the first step? And what are the steps? Because I know a lot, of, a lot of people will say, well, the step is that on the religious side, they need or we need to compromise. So we need to kind of drop our standards a little bit to be more embracing and more accepting of people who do things differently or would like to do things differently. My concern with that is that everything gets rather watered down. Um, the other side is be more accepting of, of who we are. Respect, respect. This is what's kept Judaism on the face of this planet against tremendous, tremendous odds. For the longest time And you can't say it was our military might Because for most of history We didn't have military might And you can't say it's our culture Because we've adapted all kinds of culture From all kinds of places Where we've been resident over the course of history So what's kept us who we are Undoubtedly is the Torah And its teachings And our traditions That's what's kept us who we are Who was it? Uh, I forget Was it Shalom Aleichem? Who said it? That more than the Jews have kept Shabbos, Shabbos has kept the Jews. And it's a really famous quote, and right now I can't remember who said it. But the point of the matter is that you, you, can't, you can't just throw away who we are in an attempt to reconcile with our different opinions. Let's take as an example the, one of the greatest running conflicts in Judaism, which would have been between the schools of Hillel and Shammai. I mean, they argued on a large number of practical application issues in Judaism. Like, how do you do X and Y? How do you celebrate Hanukkah? Just use an example that we could all relate to. And it's either one way or the other. And it's a running debate, but nowhere in, in the story did we have a compromise to say, well, actually, we're, we're no longer going to observe the law because we'd like to accommodate the other side. This is the law. It's been voted on, majority view, and, you know, that's that's just where where it is. But the schools of Hillel and Shammai were great friends. There was no conflict, despite the fact that the one group would have wanted Judaism to be lived a certain way, and the other group, so to speak, got their way. So it's interesting. Here's another anonymous SMS. Pity that it's anonymous. Um, so here's a, my question was, who should take the first step? It's almost like to say, you know, who's going to blink first in the conflict that seems to exist between the religious and the secular. So here's an anonymous SMS that says, for a start, Rabbonim need to be more humble, less patronizing, and show true leadership with kindness. I'd love to unpack that because straight away what comes to my mind is, Question one, why is it that we always say the rabbis, the rabbinate, the leadership needs to be less patronizing, more humble? In other words, what I'm saying is if, if we believe in something strongly that this is the way that it should be, is that automatically patronizing? That's the first question. And the second question is surely there's leadership within the secular community too. So are we automatically assuming that all leadership within the rabbinic community is patronizing? And needs to learn 
to be more humble and kind. And all leadership within the secular community is naturally kind and humble. I find that difficult to accept. So if you would tell me that the religious jury should take the first step because they expect of themselves or claim to be the custodians of truth and therefore should be the ones who are big enough to reach out, I would accept that absolutely. But I find it hard to imagine that we can, with one brush, say all rabbis need to learn to be more humble, less patronizing, and more kind, and there's no expectation of leadership on the other side to have to do the same. Sounds like it's a little bit unfair, the balance, to me. But uh, then again, let's unpack it. I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. So your thoughts, 34519. Pity that some of the really good comments come a little bit close to the end of the show, but keep them coming. You can always carry this over into the world of social media or other places. 0621482374 if you'd like to WhatsApp. Otherwise, tweet at HiFM, tweet at Rabbi Shish. Join Rabbi Ari Shishler for some fresh thinking every Thursday from 2 to 3 p.m. 101.9 High FM, 101.9 megahertz of power. So here's the thing. I mean, I don't think we will, unfortunately, I don't think we'll resolve this level of conflict that exists in just one sitting, especially with just me talking. <laughs> I mean, all the wrong people. We need to have people around a table. We need to engage. Maybe it's one relationship at a time. Probably, probably is. And it's probably happening, to be honest. While media likes to hype things up and to accentuate wherever there's some level of stress or conflict just because that's what sells media. In, in reality, on the ground, there's absolutely no question that it's not, it's not all about this hurling of insults against each other and this widespread kind of anger. I, I, I don't believe it. But what I do think is that in, in, in any situation, in any kind of conflict, in any kind of resolution that we'd like to have, if we're going to talk about love for our fellow Jew, nothing ever gets off the ground if we propose any solution that only applies to one side of the argument. So if you people would, if that group would, everything would be resolved. Never. Can't be. Doesn't work that way. Any kind of a conflict that happens, there's always something for me to do as there is for you to do. So if we stand on two opposite sides of the fence on a particular topic, there is never a situation where we can say, well, listen, I have the moral high ground for whatever reason, either because I believe that I have access to the original word of God or because I believe that I am that kind of person who is humble and kind and tolerant or whatever, or whatever it is. Any time that a person wants to resolve any kind of a conflict, which is something we're supposed to work on at this time of the year, the three weeks leading up to Tisha B'Av, the time of the year when we commemorate how damaging it could be when Jews are at each other's throats and how important it is for us to become an embracing group of people. If we want to get out of the starting blocks, the first thing we have to do is to acknowledge to ourselves it's not about them alone. It doesn't matter who the them is. It doesn't matter if the, if I'm on the secular side looking at the religious people and saying, you rabbis, or if I'm on the religious side looking at the secular people saying, you liberals. It actually does not, not make a difference. Nowhere could a person resolve a conflict until the person is willing to say, I am part of the conflict, therefore I'm part of the cause of the conflict. It has to be. It has to be. Logically, it just has to be that way. And I think that's something you learn in, a, in an interesting way, but it's something you learn from the example of Aaron HaKohen, Aaron the high priest, brother of Moses, and how he would manage conflict. And he would go to both sides, and he would propose to both sides, and he would say to both sides, 
He'd go to a person. So you got these two people in conflict. He'd go to the one person and say, listen, I've spoken to your colleague. I've spoken to the person who's at, with, at, at, at odds with you. And he really, really wants to reconcile. He just doesn't have the guts to approach you. And that person would say, well, listen, if he wants to reconcile, we could, we could talk. And then he'd go to the other person and say, you know, I just spoke to that guy and he's ready to reconcile. It's just he doesn't have the guts to approach you. And that person would go, well, listen, if he's ready to reconcile, we can talk. And was he lying? Was he just playing them? Surely after he did it a couple of times, word got round in the community that this is what Aaron was up to. People saw through it. But what Aaron did, and this is the critical thing that we have to remember, is he looked at a person and he said, I know that who you really are is somebody who doesn't want conflict. Who you really are is somebody who wants peace with that person who irks you so badly. I know that's who you are. And that's why I can tell the next guy that you really want to make peace. Not because I'm trying to play anybody but because that's the reality and that's what we have to recognize about our jewish community and that's what we have to recognize about israel and the quicker we recognize it about each other the quicker we can get somewhere in resolving all of this the other person really wants to make good they do nobody likes to live in conflict nobody likes to have their ideas ripped to shreds either but nobody likes to live in conflict conflict we really want to be one united group of people And when we can start to see that in each other, we can start to talk. And we can start to see that each of us has a role to play in making this happen and that it's never on one person's shoulders, then we can talk. And who knows? Maybe we can turn this whole thing around one relationship at a time, one person at a time. Have a fantastic Shabbos. Please, God, pick up next week, same time.